Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. And uh, we're going to read down to the end of the chapter today and study down to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. And as we do every Sunday, we want to read God's Word together and read it aloud. So with all that sound coming from those air conditioners, I need you to really resound your voices as we read God's Word this morning. Verse 32, let's read together. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you and we bless you for the beauty of this day, the beauty of this morning in which we can come to read your word and now to study it that we may grow in in greater understanding of your word toward our hearts. We ask that you would anoint us and bless us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, Lord, to receive your word today that we, Lord God, may take hold of the truths of this passage and live them out until the day of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You all may be seated. When the Holy Spirit had come upon the 120 at Pentecost, He did so as a rushing mighty wind. And they praised God with unknown tongues. In their first recorded encounter with opposition, the church prayed for boldness from the Lord. And He responded by shaking the place where they were gathered together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Each time, the Lord gave them exactly what they needed, and each time, the Lord added to the church. What is significant in the transition between the previous passage and today's text is, first of all, the unity, the solidarity, the harmony among the believers, fashioned and produced by the Spirit of God, wonderfully fulfilling the Lord Jesus' prayer, what we have called the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, And if you'll notice here in verses 20 through 23, Jesus is praying to his Father, and he says, I do not pray for these alone, of course, speaking of his disciples and his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, speaking of us who believe, 
But then he says, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may be be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This passage in Acts is answer to that prayer. The passage that we read earlier in the book of Acts is an answer to the prayer of Jesus that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I, in you. And certainly it is God's desire for us that we regard others more important than things because that is what we're going to come to realize in the lives of these uh, apostles and disciples of Jesus Christ at this particular time in the book of Acts. That they came to realize through the, through the life of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit that others were more important than things. Other people were more important than the things that they had than the possessions that they may have kept. It is sad to, to think that this heart attitude in the church of Jesus Christ at that point in time did not last that long in the church. In fact, as we'll see in the next chapter, Satan was already at work in a few people. But suffice it to say that we need to return to the biblical understanding of who and what belongs to whom. Because I think that even today in, in, in the church of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of questions about who or what belongs to who or to whom, as it were. And so coming back to a biblical understanding of who and what belongs to whom so that the enemy would no longer have a foothold in the body of Christ. And I believe that every day he tries to get a foothold in the church by getting us to think that things are more important than people. Warren Wiersbe has stated that the church at Pentecost in chapter 2 and the church following the threats of the Sanhedrin in chapter 4 were unified, or the church itself was unified, I should say, unified and magnified and multiplied because they were spirit-filled and spirit-led. Unified because it was a God-given spiritual unity. Magnified because they had favor with all the people. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4, as we've seen, when they had threatened the apostles, they let them go. They didn't do anything else but threaten them. Why? Because they were afraid of the people. The apostles, the believers in Jesus Christ were magnified in the hearts and the minds of the people. And then multiplied because it was the Lord that added to the church while they delighted in being effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. They were unified, they were magnified, and they were multiplied. But Satan's attack here in chapter 4 through the religious leaders that were threatening Peter and John, that attack was to no avail. For these very reasons, that they were unified, that they were magnified, and they were multiplied. They had become a community of believers with a unity of mind, a unity of purpose, and a unity of desire. And the presence of the Holy Spirit gave them an unselfish love for one another. 
Folks, we ought not to pass up this, this particular thought. It was the Holy Spirit that gave them an unselfish love for one another. Look at verse 32. It is very clear in this verse. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. It can't be any clearer than that. Did any, uh, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. What a tremendous statement. The two things that we're going to look at here. None said that anything that they possessed was his own. That is not to say that they were just giving it to some community uh, uh, place, you know, some kind of a a storage house, you know, just to say, well, it's just, it's all of ours. You have to understand that when they said that they didn't have anything that they possessed as their own, it was because it belonged to God. And then the other thing is that, that they had all things in common because that word common is what, what community and what, what fellowship was all about. The word common here is the word koine, which of course if you understand the, the, you know, the, 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 the kind of Greek that is written for us here in, in, the, Old Testament, in, the, in the New Testament, I'm sorry, the, 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 the Greek that was used was koine Greek. It was common Greek, not classical Greek. But from the word koine, we get another word, and we've talked about that word already in our study of the book of Acts, and that's the word koinonia. They had all things in common. They shared everything together. They were in fellowship one with another because of Jesus Christ, because of the power of the Holy Spirit that had brought them together. They had all things in common. So there have been those who have called the contents of this passage here in Acts chapter 4, they've called it a form of communism. I think it's interesting that, you know, you could read through some, some commentators and, and they'll, they'll, they'll look at it and even say that this was Christian communism. But there certainly are differences and tremendous differences, by the way, between this form of community and, uh, or, or what we call koinonia and, and what we know to be political communism. Most of us have a little bit of an idea of, of what political communism is. But communism says, in effect... What's yours is ours, and we'll take it for the good of all. Now, that's, that's, the, uh, <laughs> that, that's what they'd like for you to believe, you see. In some cases, communism is what's yours is ours, what's ours is ours, and we'll take what you have for what we'll believe is the good of all, but in fact, it's, it's really not. <laughs> that's the truth. Or the leaders will say, what's yours is ours, what's ours is ours, and, and we'll, better, we'll be better for it, and some people may, may or not, may not uh, benefit from it. We can see a lot of that in communism today, but Christian, uh, uh, Christian koinonia, Christian fellowship, Christian community says this, and we get it from this passage here, what is mine is yours, and I'll gladly share it. That's not only the heart of the church, that's the heart of Jesus. What is mine is yours, and I gladly share it. Now, this brings up the question. Shouldn't giving then be a blessing and not a burden? Shouldn't giving be a blessing and not a burden? I think we're going to learn uh, from this particular passage what the intent of, of 
of the apostles was and what the intent of Jesus was for us to learn about how we are to share in community and in fellowship all the blessings that God has given us so that none lack, so that none are without. And I think sometimes of this attitude of giving, you know, that we we sometimes see in the church, that it isn't so much a blessing, but it is a burden. And we think, oh man, we've got to give again. Well, but we've got to give it. That's okay. We'll give it. But oh my goodness, what a burden it is. Well, that's, that's not what this is all about. We learn in the next chapter that what the believers did in the early church was purely and sincerely voluntary. In other words, nobody was telling them, you have to give this. You have to go sell everything you have. Nobody says that. We don't see any signs of that here. What we do know from the next chapter is that what they did was was purely and sincerely voluntary and the motivation for such action was love. Pure and simple, the motivation was love. It was love from a pure heart. It was love that was given to them through the love of Christ, through the love of the apostles, through the love that was beginning to flow through the church, that people honestly cared for one another. They didn't care where you came from, what your background was, what you looked like, what you, uh, how you dressed. They, they cared about your heart. This is what the early church was about. As a matter of fact, in Acts 5 verse 4, if you'll just go a page over to the next uh, chapter. And it proves to us here that it was a purely voluntary uh, thing that they did. For in, the, for in the questioning given to Ananias and Sapphira, the ones who didn't get the concept, who didn't get the understanding of all of this... The questions posed to them at the beginning of that that verse, verse 4 of Acts 5, says, While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? So that's very clear here that they they were not forced into giving. They were not told what to give. They were not being, uh, 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 you know, just pushed into this. It was purely voluntary. There has to be recognition here that all things belong to God. His ownership of everything. We need to consider the ownership of all things belonging to God. One verse of Scripture covers that in effect, one of the Psalms. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That should say it all. Everything belongs to God. One other thing too, if we've come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we belong to Him, we don't belong to ourselves any longer. We belong to Him. So it belongs to Him and He gives us, whatever it is that we have, He gives us the opportunity to be good stewards, to be good managers of that which He has lent us in effect. Now we all lend from time to time. And sometimes we wish we didn't. Your neighbor comes over and says, can I borrow your lawnmower? And you being the good Christian that you are, say, well, okay. Enjoy. And it comes back and the next time you try to use it, it doesn't work the same way. And you wish you had given some stipulations about how to do things, you see. We all lend, you know, but it doesn't bother us, you know, much. (laughs) But this is what we're seeing God giving to us. In effect, we have so much, don't we? He gives us some sense of ownership in in, in that what we have, we have control, but 
our hearts should be dictating that these things still belong to God. You see, this is how we understand what it means to have all things common here, or all things in common. The Lord would bring needs to their attention. The Lord was bringing needs to the attention of the church. The Lord brings needs, uh, brings needs to our attention as well. We see needs around us. We want to respond to those things. And we know that God is the one who is able to do it through what we've, we've been given. And we're going we're to learn some, some interesting things here about how much we have to help those in need. The fact of the matter is that they were under no obligation to sell all that they possessed and to share the proceeds with one another. And we are not either. We're under no obligation. And yet all of us are expected to be generous to one another and to use the things we've acquired in this temporal world for greater and eternal purposes. You see, that's the mindset of a believer who is in love with Christ and in love with His people. That we we look at the things that we have now to go beyond just meeting certain temporal needs, but that what we may be doing is giving greater purpose and eternal purposes uh, and giving toward uh, greater uh, purposes in mind. Take, for example, what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you'll turn there and look at uh, these two passages from this chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Now what is the important word in this, whole, in this first sentence? Godliness. He says, Now godliness with contentment <coughs> is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. What is that suggestion? The suggestion is, nothing belongs to us, everything belongs to God. We came into this world with nothing. When we leave, we leave with nothing. Physically, in in other words. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Now, wouldn't that be great if we even, we in the church, would have that particular attitude to where we are happy because we have food and clothing? Food because we need to have sustenance so we might continue to work and do everything that we do for the Lord. The clothing so we don't embarrass ourselves. It's a good thing to have these things. Right? I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to get into the psychological issues here, but you know, there have been those people who try to analyze dreams and they say, you know, I don't understand. I dream and I, I'm just, in, you know, I'm not wearing anything, you know. Well, put something on. God's given you something to wear. And with food and clothing, we shall be content. But you see, we want to add things in our day and time and culture and society. Oh, with food and, clo- with food and clothing and cars and, 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 uh, and houses and, 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 you know, and on and on and on and on and on, we can go. But it's the very basic things that should concern us. Not only just because we are blessed with it, but we want others to be blessed. Others need to eat. Others need to be clothed. But those who desire, verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Now you begin to notice a different mindset here. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Perdition meaning lostness. And then he gives us that verse that many people know and sometimes misquote. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The love of money is the root. Notice it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. 
It is in the heart of the person who desires that money. It's not the money itself. Money is something that we need, uh, you know, to be able to do the things that we can do, not only for our families and homes, but especially for the Lord. It is the love of money, the desire for that money, from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. It is a sad thing when you hear that people, you know, you know, they've been so faithful coming to church or faithful in serving the Lord, have left because they've, they've been caught up with the, the, the desire to have more. And they have to work more to get in so they don't have time to come to church anymore. So they fall into a greedy situation. But then what are they doing? They're piercing themselves through with many sorrows. They're no longer joyful. That's a sad thing, isn't it? So he says to Timothy as well as to us, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. You see the eternal perspective that we are to have every day of our lives in this world? To which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now if you will, jump down to verse 17. And Paul goes on to say, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. In other words, don't be arrogant or conceited, nor to trust in uncertain riches. And I can assure you of this, there are a lot of uncertain riches in this world today. Let me just give you one word, Enron. Does that not bring up to mind uncertain riches? Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Trust in God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So what I'm saying here is that even what... what with what God has given to us. We, we can enjoy the life that He's given us. But we are to be wise in that life. Wise in that spending. Wise in the way we do these things. And then He says, let them do good. That they be rich in good works. Ready to give. Willing to share. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. That they may lay hold on eternal life. And there it is again. You see, it keeps coming back to this eternal perspective. It keeps coming back to the very fact that it isn't here that everything we do is all that matters. Well, I'll spend all my money here, but in heaven, you know, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Everything we do with what we have focuses on eternity. How wise we need to be with that which God has given to us. R. Kent Hughes has written in his book called Set Apart, a worldly church to a godly life. I'm sorry, calling a worldly church to a godly life. Set apart, calling a worldly church to a godly life. In this book, he writes some sobering statistics of which we should be aware. And this is what he says. He says, Christians cannot exempt themselves from the general culture of materialism. The statistics will not allow us because the spending habits of most Christians are indistinguishable from those of other Americans. Pay close attention to what he says. He goes on and he says, do we give? He asks the question, do we give? On the average, it isn't much. Less than 3%. He's talking about the whole church, everybody that would be in church, whether, you know, believe it or not, people who go to church. Just on average, he says, less than 3% give. Then he says, tellingly, only 8% of born-again Christian adults tied their income to their church. Only 8% of born-again adults. 
tithe their income to the church. But here's the staggering statistic that he gives. He says Christians spend seven times more on entertainment than they do on spiritual services. Seven times more on entertainment. This is a sad commentary on the church. But listen to what Paul says. Look, go back. I'm not, we're not going to read it again. But you just go back and look at every statement that Paul says to Timothy. And then go back to chapter 4 of the book of Acts, as we should be now, because I want to, you to focus on something here. And consider what God is saying to us through this chapter. The sharing then, you see. The koinonia, the fellowship described in verse 32 of our text, should be an example to us. It is to be an example to us. What is it that it says? It says, The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. The church should be a place where we are prompted by the Holy Spirit to meet the needs of others, whether material or spiritual as God has given us the means. Now, verse 33 has an important reason for being placed where it is. When you look at it, you think, you know, when you read it together in context, you think it just seems a little out of place. It should have possibly come at the end of the last passage. But it is perfectly where God wants it to be for us today. It says, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. You see, it was due to the fact that the church was so energetic. It was due to the fact that the church was so active. It was due to the fact that the church was so alive to the Holy Spirit that the apostles' testimony and the witness to the resurrection was flourishing. It was so successful because the church was alive in the Holy Spirit. Christ's resurrection from the dead, of course, for us, is without a doubt true. And it needs nothing to prove it. But when the resurrection of Jesus is preached, as we see it here in the book of Acts, when the resurrection of Jesus is preached, when we do that, we are making a pronouncement that life has a new spiritual dynamic for the person who believes and is saved in Jesus there's a whole new kind of life that we have because of the love of Christ, because of the resurrection of Jesus. It is a new spiritual dyna dynamic. But if that dynamic is not being exhibited by other believers in the church, then we see a detachment. We see a disconnect then. Grace is the key. Great grace was upon them all. You see, unbelievers could see in the early church the power of the resurrection working itself through in the lives of the Christians. And it was something that drew men and women to the cross. What they saw in them was the resurrection, resurrected life of Jesus in these people. Not only in the things that they were saying about the resurrection, but in the way that they loved one another, in the way that they served one another, in the way that they took care of one another. That is the resurrected life of Jesus in us. 
That is why that verse is where it is. With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And you'll notice in verse 34, we'll get there in a moment, but it says, nor was, any, was there anyone among them who lacked. You see how that verse fits in there? It, it seems out of place, but it isn't. Why? Because great grace was upon them all. And they were drawing men and women to the cross of Jesus Christ to receive and to obtain that resurrected life of Jesus Christ. And how important was that? Look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. The Apostle Paul here, giving testimony of his own life of of Christ in him. He says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. The resurrected life. He says, that's what I want. That's what I, what I need. That I may know Him in the power of the resurrection. Great grace was upon Paul, certainly. Listen, we know that because we read Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. The resurrected life of Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. And what we find now in the remaining verses of chapter 4 of Acts are more specific aspects then of selling and sharing. And it brings us that connection from verse 32 to verse 34 by that one statement of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For it says in verse 34, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who who were possessors of land or houses sold them. Again, they were not told to or prompted to or, 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 or put into a guilt trip to do it. It just says, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. The, the idea here is that they chose to do this. And it says, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Notice, they were there to meet needs. And my question at this point to you is, can sacrifice be joyful? Can sacrifice be a joyful thing? You see, there would be some that would say, no, not really. Oh, I give to the church all the time. Oh, uh, well, I have to, you know, I mean, that's what the Bible says. But uh. (laughs) That's not joy. Can sacrifice be a joyful thing? I I want you to remember something. Remember that they were under no obligation to do what they did. Was sacrifice a joyful thing? You see, the physical and material needs appeared to be so great, so there also appears to be a considerable generosity. They saw the needs and they met them. There was a considerable generosity. Possessors of lands or houses sold them. You know what this takes? It takes observation and listening. It takes people who are concerned about the hearts and the lives of people, not only in the, in the temporal, but also in eternal. And they observe and they listen. And they say, you know what, that person has a need. I'm not going to wait for anybody else to act. If I see that need, the Lord Jesus has put it on my heart to love them and to meet that need. And that's what they were doing. 
They were motivated by love. They were, obs- they were observing. They were listening. They were seeking out needs. How many of us are truly seeking out needs today? I know that we, we live in a very affluent society and all of that, but you know what? There's still a lot of needs around us. And even in our church, there are times when people will call and say, well, you know, we have a need. Well, we do everything we can to meet that need when we know it is a need. Not a want, but a need. And in effect, you're doing that as you give unto this church. That's going out to the people who have needs. But then again, you also have that motivation in in, in seeking those things out. And so what what was happening here on that that day, you know, that we're we're having recorded for us by Luke, as someone once put it, and I I think this this is a great thought here, they didn't just have a garage sale. They sold the garage. They didn't just have a garage sale. They sold the garage. I mean, let's face it. That's what was happening here. It wasn't just selling little pittance things. They were, they were selling the whole house here so that they could give to others. And, 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 and it was a joyful thing. Joyful personal sacrifice was the attitude of the day. And all of this points to one man. It points to a man named Joseph who would be given the nickname by the apostles, Barnabas, son of encouragement. Look at verse 36. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. A couple of things real quickly here. You know, I, I, I'm thankful that offerings are laid at the feet of pastors today at least shouldn't be you know it shouldn't be that way and so uh, this passage is not to be considered instruction to do this all right this is what they did so that the apostles it wasn't some thing to honor the the apostles what what it was it was brought to them so that they could distribute it as they saw the needs uh, so I, I've oftentimes seen on TV that this practice can be done but it seems to Keep going to the pastor and not anywhere else. But, you know, that's the first thought. And then I, then I think of, I think of this, this nickname, you know, the son of encouragement. I think, what a, what a wonderful thing, you know, the apostles gave him a nickname, you know. Uh, those of us growing, you know, growing up in this city and it's just, you know, in, a, in our, you know, Hispanic culture and stuff, we, we, we oftentimes got nicknames. And a lot of times, you know, we were given nicknames in school and, oh, man, we hated it, right? You know. The guy that was nice, you know, usually a darker, darker person, you know. I'm talking about a friend of mine in school, you know, kind of dark, and you know, always had a good set of hair. But one day, his dad shaved his head, shaved his head, and 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 he had wide, white skin on top. And the, the minute every the, the, this one guy saw him, he says, "Hey, you look like a foco, you know, light bulb." And no matter that he grew his hair back, he remained foco throughout all of his. And he hated it, man. No, oh, don't call me foco. But that's, you know, that's the way we are. You know, we give nicknames. But this is a better nickname, you know, because <laughs> it has meaning, it has purpose. He was a son of encouragement. They saw this in his life. And, and, and so, uh, you know, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't know why I brought him up. You know, I just, I just had a picture in my mind. The reason for Barnabas to be introduced here, the reasons are threefold. First of all, he was a generous giver. 
And he was a picture of the very thing that Luke was describing. That's the first thing. Secondly, his noble act would not only fill Ananias and Sapphira, who we're going to meet next, next time, but uh, his act would not only fill Ananias and Sapphira with some level of envy, so that they tried to impress the church with their giving, which didn't pay off for them, by the way, but it would also serve as the very contrast to their attitudes and their actions. Barnabas is, is, is the contrast to Ananias and Sapphira. But thirdly, Barnabas would have a very significant ministry in the church and will be mentioned at least 25 times in the book of Acts and five times in the epistles. And that ministry was in his nickname. That ministry was in the name Son of Encouragement. Son of Encouragement. You see, it would be Barnabas who would encourage Paul, who once was called Saul of Tarsus. He would encourage Paul in his early service for the Lord. You look at Acts chapter 9, just briefly here. In Acts 9, verses 26 and 27, it tells us that when Saul of Tarsus had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Well, I mean, you know, you heard the news that Saul was, you know, he was a Pharisee and he, he was actually one that was commissioned to persecute uh, uh, Christians, uh, persecute Jews that had, had, had gone to follow Jesus Christ and, and in some cases even execute them, really. And so they were afraid of, of this Saul. You know, what's he up to? But notice verse 27. Because we already know that, that Saul's heart was turned toward Jesus. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Everything changed in his life. And then we see in verse 27, but Barnabas took him. You see, this is what an encourager does. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. You know, it shows that Barnabas had love for Saul and love for the apostles. And he had a purpose. And he had no fear to go to these people and to tell them, Listen, I need to tell you about this guy, Saul. He took him, he brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. He gave testimony. But what that was was an encouragement for, for Paul. It was an encouragement that somebody came alongside of him and lifted him up and said, Hey, you're going to be okay. Don't get discouraged. You know, the first visit to some church is, is usually, a, it could be an, either an encouragement or a discouragement. I hope it's an encouragement to you as you come in here and somebody comes up and says hi to you and, and loves you and just, just greets you and welcomes you in this place. If it doesn't happen, you let me know. I'll come after him. And I'll come after you. I, I just want us to be encouragers, you see, of people. And, let's not, and by the way, church, let's not get into the attitude of saying, well, you know, I, I kind of have this little problem. I, I'm always being a little afraid of people. Hey, do you have the Lord in you? God didn't give you the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. Be an encourager, okay? Be an encourager. All right. That's enough sermonizing. What else would, would, would Barnabas do in encouragement? Well, he also encouraged his cousin John Mark after, you know, that little dispute with Paul they had, you know, as far as... You know, it was John Mark was going to, Paul didn't want him to go, and Barnabas, of course, you know. Well, later on, it all got resolved, and I'm going to go into that because we'll get, that, get, get there one of these years or days in, 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 in the book of Acts. 
But let's just say that Barnabas was a tremendous means of comfort, a tremendous means of consolation, and a tremendous means of encouragement. All three of those words mean the same thing. Use the same word. Comfort, consolation, and encouragement. That's what Barnabas was. And he was a tremendous means of this to God's people. And he was certainly a spirit-filled man who gave his all to the Lord. So this is the introduction that, that, that Luke gives us of, of Barnabas. And one last thing about Barnabas, and this is really important. One last thing about Barnabas. He was from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Levi, if you want to use that to, uh, pronouncement. The tribe of Levi. Consider for a moment that under God's law, Levites were not allowed to own any property. They were to serve the Lord in the temple and were to be taken care of by the gifts of the people. But here was Barnabas, a Levite, and that's, it's important that, that Luke mentions this. A Levite, says from Cyprus, not living anywhere near <laughs> Jerusalem, Barnabas a Levite taking care of people by giving them a gift of property he wasn't even supposed to own. Interesting, isn't it? It tells us a little bit about his life before he comes to Jesus. To be a Levite, to be a, a, a faithful Levite, well, he wasn't. He owned property, he lived in Cyprus, he lived far away. But the Lord brought him. The Lord saved him. You know, there, other than that, there's not a lot that uh, we, we know about Barnabas in all of this, but, but this we can surmise. That what the law could not do in getting the Levite Joseph to fulfill in obedience, the grace of God accomplished through Barnabas as soon as he was saved. As soon as he was saved, it was the grace of God that brought this about. That Barnabas would, would sell his land and, 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 and bring the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Shouldn't we all be glad that grace is always a better motivator than the law? Shouldn't we be glad that grace is a better motivator than the law? Turn to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. And look at the words of the apostle Paul when he says in verse 3, For what the law could not do... And that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What is that? Grace. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What is that? That's grace. Aren't we glad that grace is a better motivator than the law? What the law could not do and that it was weak to the flesh, God did. Grace by sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh. Grace. What did verse 33 say? Great grace was upon them all. I pray that great grace would be upon us today. Great grace. Let it be upon us all. You see, the church in Jerusalem was alive 
with the resurrected life or the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. That life could be seen, it could be experienced as each ministered by grace one to another. Love was at work. Love was at work. When we are concerned about our own welfare rather than that of others, it is because we know so little of the controlling love of Jesus Christ. May I repeat that statement? When we are concerned about our own welfare rather than that of others, it is because we know so little of the controlling love of Jesus Christ. May the Lord give us a new and a fresh baptism of divine love that will move our hearts in gracious thoughtfulness, in gracious consideration for all of God's people and for all men everywhere. Let that be our prayer this morning. That He would just immerse us in the love of Christ. There are areas all of us struggle with in in what we've talked about today. We've, We've gotten comfortable or we've gotten connected to things in this life. And are we willing to say, Lord, I'm ready ready to be set free of that so that I could be more of a vessel of the resurrected life of Jesus to those who have needs greater than mine. I want to close, as we go to the table of communion this morning, I want to close with Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul, again, that great... uh, uh, receiver of, of, of the consolation of, of Barnabas as well as the, the comfort of Christ and the encouragement of Christ. He says this, he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, you see those words that we've been dealing with here in the book of Acts? They're right here too. Comfort and consolation and fellowship of the Spirit. If any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy, he says, by being like-minded. Be just like that having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, like that church in Acts 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, humility in other words, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And to wrap this up here, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind, lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than ourselves, looking out not only for our own interests, which by the way means we can look out for our interests, but we're not to only look out for our interests, we're to look out for the interests of others as well. Be like-minded, comfort, fellowship, consolation. You know what that means? Encouragement. Be encouragers in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Think of those things when you take the bread this morning or when you take the cup. Because isn't this what we're what we're rejoicing in? Isn't this what we celebrate when you know when we when we you know rejoice in, in the in the very body and blood of Jesus that that not only did He die for us and shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins, but we today know that He's risen from the dead. Is this not 
but fills our hearts with the joy of the Lord that we might touch the lives of others. Let's pray.